if you've ever had to punish your children or grandchildren, you'll identify with this story. Walter Rangren is a professor at Valpo University. He's a well-known author, and he tells the story of his, grandson, of his son, Matthew. And when his Matthew was a young boy, he had apparently gotten into a practice of stealing comic books from the local store whenever they went there. And Walter tried various ways to break his son of the habit of stealing these comic books. He tried various things, even giving him the law, as we've been studying from the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. I mean, that's pretty clear, he thought. Nothing worked. Finally, he resorted to something that he used very, very little. He went in, and after telling Matthew not to steal the comic books anymore, he gave Matthew a spanking, and he felt horrible about it. You know how parents usually say, this is going to hurt me a whole lot more than it's going to hurt you. Well, that was true. He was so upset when he finished giving Matthew the spanking, he had gone out of the room and he burst into tears. And then he went back in and he sat down and apologized to Matthew and he gave him a big hug. And in tears, he expressed how sorry he was for having to give him a spanking. When Matthew was an adult, he was at home, and he and his mom were in the kitchen talking as they were preparing some food. And the subject of those comic books came up. And Matthew said to his mom, do you know what stopped me from finally stealing those comic books? And she said, yeah, when your father gave you a spanking. And he said, no, it wasn't that it at all. He said, it was when Dad came back into my room and when he was in tears. When I saw Dad's tears... I never took another comic book again. In reflecting on this, we might say this. Love accomplished what the law could not. Tears were more powerful than Sinai. Today we'll see that in Christ Jesus, the grace of God accomplished what the law could not. Jesus' cries on the cross were more powerful than tablets of stone. We are in a season in the church where we, these themes of reflection and repentance are calling for our attention. It's the season of Lent, a time of spiritual renewal as we journey toward the cross of, East of Good Friday and the empty tomb of Easter. We're thinking about our priorities our habits. Pastor Aaron helped us to think about this very much just a few moments ago. We're thinking about our relationship with God and with others. And we're now across the middle of our Lenten journey, filled with anticipation of Palm Sunday, the waving of palm branches, which will give us a foretaste of the joy of the coming Messiah King. Holy Week just around the corner with remembrance and inten intensity, and the passion and the hope that it brings. Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, the darkness of Holy Saturday, and finally Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. 
As Jeremiah says in chapter 31, verse 31, Behold, these days are coming. These indeed are words we need to hear. Hopeful words. I've always loved the prophet Jeremiah, especially Jeremiah 29, 11, which is one of my go-to passages. Maybe it is for you. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. In turn, I've shared these words with many others during my ministry. And it's uh, encouraging to them. And I believe it's still encouraging uh, yet to me. God spoke to Jeremiah these words. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And God asked him to write down words of judgment and punishment that God would bring upon Judah and Israel because of their continued disobedience. It seemed to go back generations. The golden calf woven into the strands of their DNA. But God also instructed Jeremiah to write hopeful words. They would, the words of judgment and destruction would not be the last words. But God gave Jeremiah words of hope to give the people as they returned from exile and hopeful words to us on this side of the cross. Hopeful words of redemption, salvation, and a future hope. God instructed Jeremiah to write words of hope that would sustain the people in their captivity and help them as they returned to their land so that they might prosper. This particular section of the prophecy of Jeremiah is called the letter or the book of consolation, chapter uh, 30 through 33. And it presents within it a new covenant. And I'd like to explore what's new about it. What is new about this new covenant. It's in the Old Testament. So what's new about it? I'd like to make four observations today. The first is, judgment is not God's final word. Remember that. We worship a God of love and hope, a God who has given us everything in His Son, Jesus Christ. Judgment's not the last word. Listen to the prophet this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Write in a book, this is chapter 30, by the way, verses 1 through 3. Write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land that their ancestors, for their ancestors to possess, declares the Lord. Yes, there would be 70 years of punishment and captivity, but God would deliver them from Babylonian slavery and provide a new way for them to relate to him and to obey his commands. God would initiate a new covenant with his people, not written on stone tablets. It would be written on human hearts. It was to be internal rather than external. It was based on relationship, not rules and regulations. This new covenant would define the relationship between God and the people of God. So here in Jeremiah 31, we read that God is going to take the initiative to reframe the issue and call for 
real change. The old covenant, the one at Sinai, the one written on tablets of stone, was in effect what we might call a left-brain approach to this whole thing of change. Facts, information, commandments. Very clear-cut. A list to follow. That covenant was broken because the people just couldn't adapt to, to themselves fully. They couldn't conform to it. Like an addict who tries hard to bolster the willpower to change, the people of God were powerless to make those difficult changes on their own. So God turns to another approach. We might call it a more right-brained approach. Rather than write another legal prescription to warn them of their impending doom, God will put his law within them. Write it on their hearts. God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. This covenant, this new covenant would redefine and remind the people of God's covenant that was made when God created them in his image at the very beginning. This wouldn't be carried around in a box or just thought about. It would be instilled in their hearts, in their emotions, in their hopes, and in their dreams. They would think about it day and night. They would meditate on God's law. It would be in their minds and in their hearts. God was updating the covenant, reframing the relationship, moving to, from commandments to conversion, from rules to relationship. No longer would they simply know about God in an intellectual way, but they would know God with their emotions, with their hearts, their very lives. When the Hebrew Scripture says that God would put the uh, commands in their minds, literal, the literal word is in their inner being, almost like in their very core of who they were. And then I will write it on their hearts. So God is saying that His instructions, His word, His laws will be written inside the fabric of human beings. God was offering a new opportunity for his people to change from a pattern of failure and disobedience to a relationship based on grace and forgiveness. And I sure am glad that God did that. I hope you are too. Jesus would later embody this new covenant, this reframing of the story. While the Pharisees and others around him would continually press for rule following and regulation, obedience, Jesus was constantly calling the people to engage with God through a relationship rather than a religious ritual. And this is what got him crucified. He said essentially, to know me is to know God. To follow me is to follow a new path. And to be in God's presence, to experience God's grace is the way to real change. He painted a picture of a future filled with joy for those who would be transformed in this way. In other words, he made change a real live option, even changing the threat of death itself to the promise of a resurrection life. So judgment would not be the final word at all. The second thing that's new about this new covenant is that God promises to do what we can't do on our own. Listen to chapter 31, verses 33. 1 through 33 in just a minute. God calls us to be people where their covenant is written on our hearts. 
It's a transformative moment. The Old Testament reading for today from Jeremiah claims that the true nature of God is abundant love and everlasting care. It's an everlasting covenant. It never ceases. By writing God's nature on our hearts, we say that we belong to God, that we belong to God, that we are his. But there's something here that only God can do. It's by grace, and it's only by grace that we can engage in this relationship and be forgiven. As you heard me read earlier, God would forgive our sins and remember them no more. God would cast this, our sins into the depths of the sea of forgiveness. This brings back the relationship that we have with God where we are created in the image of God. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. The image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It reminds us of the covenant at creation, that we are created in the image of God. And the psalmist reminds us of this same truth in Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14. For you created my inmost being, says the Lord. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I know that your works are wonderful. I know that full well. We belong to God. We do. Maybe you saw that movie years ago, The Toy Story. The first one was in 1995, many years ago. And in the movie, it shows Andy's uh, toys come to life. All the toys in his room come to life. And we, uh, Andy is not there. All of the toys talk to each other. They have a whole community. Andy loves all of his toys, but especially his little cowboy, Woody. The story goes on that on Andy's birthday, he receives a very exciting new toy. And you know which, which one. Buzz Lightyear. Buzz is a space ranger, complete with a laser beam, a space helmet, and the means to communicate between planets. And Buzz Lightyear becomes a new favorite toy of Andy. He even makes sure that his name is written on the bottom of Buzz Lightyear's foot with permanent ink. The Buzz Lightyear toy, while Andy is away, gets the impression that he himself is the real Buzz Lightyear rather than a toy like the rest of them. And after a series of mishaps, he is brought to the reality that he is not the real Buzz Lightyear. And Buzz gets a case of the blues. He no longer cares to be a toy. We would say that he got really depressed and, and was very sad. This is when the original leader of the toys, Woody, starts to show his stuff. Woody truly cares about the toys and also understands each one's purpose. All of the toys in the community are Andy's toys. They're there for Andy to enjoy. Andy's toys are special. They are important. They are to be loved by Andy. 
He cares so much about his toys that he puts his name on each one. And Woody then shows Buzz that he himself, that Woody, has Andy's name on the bottom of his boot. And then Woody begins to show Buzz that each toy is special and that Andy loves each one because they belong to him. They're Andy's. And he shows Buzz and reminds Buzz that Andy's name is on the bottom of his space shoe, too. God has written his name on our hearts as we are created in the image of God, imago dei. And in this passage of Scripture, he reminds us how much he loves us, so much so that he's given us a new covenant which was instilled in our minds and written on our hearts. Never doubt that. Each of us is special, not because of what we can accomplish, because that we belong to God and what God can do through us. We have God's handwriting on our hearts to prove it. The Apostle Paul expresses these same concepts to the believers in the, Christ, the, the Christian believers at Ephesus. In chapter 1, verse 12 and 14, he writes this, And you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. We are marked with a seal. The Holy Spirit. God's people in this new covenant. As children of God who inherit the fullness of all that God has to offer, we can say with certainty that these aspects of God's character are imprinted in the fabric of our very being. They are inseparable. They are internal unremovable from us. The nature of God, the nature of God's love is part of our existence, part of our very being. I think this is what the writer is getting at when he communicates, Jeremiah, that no longer will there need to be teachers because God's word will be written on everyone's heart, young and old. Now, I think this is a, a way to express God's desire because we know that we all need teachers, especially Bible teachers who can help us grow in the Lord and understand God's word. But the desire is God is that, of, that God has in this passage is that through this new covenant that people young and old will know him in their heart and these commands will be written on their very being. The third thing that's new about this new covenant is that by grace, the past does not determine our future. How often do we get stuck in the past and we allow everything that happened in the past, all the negative stuff, to keep us from experiencing the future that God has in store for us? Our past can cloud out the future. We can't see the future desires because of things like our past sins, our guilt, the shame that others put on us our situation and circumstances, the shadow of the valley of depression and so forth. These can keep us 
from experiencing the fullness of God. But Emerson writes, write it on your heart that every day is the best day of the year. He is rich who owns the day, and no one who owns the day is allowed it allows it to invade with fret and anxiety. Finish every day and be done with it, he writes. You have done what you could. Some blunders and absurdities, no doubt, crept in. Forget them as soon as you can. Tomorrow is a new day, Emerson writes. Begin it well and serenely, with too high a spirit to be cumbered with your old nonsense. This new day is too dear, with its hopes and invitations, to waste a moment on the yesterdays. And the last thing I'd like to say about this, what's new about this new covenant, is that it frees us to choose new ways of living. If you keep reading in chapters 32 and 33 of Jeremiah, you'll see that God's hopeful promises are continually shared. In verse 37 of chapter 32, I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banished them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live safely. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me and that all will then go well for them and for their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. I will inspire them to fear me so they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. And then in chapter 33, verse 14 and 16, through 16, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that uh, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. This hope would be revealed in the coming Messiah, and his name would be Jesus, Jesus the Christ, who gives us hope, not only for today, but for tomorrow and all the days. Several years ago, a school teacher accepted the volunteer position of visiting and teaching children who were patients in a large hospital. And one day the phone rang and the instructions were given for the teacher to go to the burn unit of the hospital. It was a new assignment for her. And she took down the name and room number of the patient and was told by the patient's teacher that he was um, studying nouns and adverbs in his class before he was hospitalized. It was not until the teacher got into the boy's room that she realized the severity of his case there in the burn unit. She was prepared to teach English grammar, but she was not prepared for what she saw that day. She wasn't prepared to hear him express his pain either. She 
she wanted to ask for a new assignment, but she didn't. She couldn't just walk away from this boy with such great need. So she went over to his bedside and she said, I am the teacher that they sent me to teach you about nouns and adverbs. The next morning, the nurse on the, u- on the, uh, the unit asked the teacher, what did you do to that boy? And the teacher thought she did something wrong. And the nurse said, no, 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 you, you don't understand. We've been really worried about him. In fact, we, feel, we felt that he was giving up. But something that you said or did has given him hope. He's like a new child. It's as if he has decided to live. Well, later the, the nurse questioned the boy about all of this. And then here's what the little boy said. I figured I was doomed. I figured that I was going to die. I was ready to give up. But then the teacher came in and she said that she was here to teach me about nouns and adverbs. And then I thought to myself, they sure wouldn't teach nouns and adverbs to a dying boy now, would they? The writer of Hebrews said, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. This is the new covenant. God bless you. Let us pray.